Well, I'm excited to begin a new series this morning called Unstoppable. For the next few weeks, we'll be looking at Romans chapter 12 in, in this series. And as we start this morning, I want us to go back to the history of First Baptist Church. This church was started in 1882. It started as a congregation that was committed to the Word of God. You see that early on in, in the, the early minutes of the church. You see that the church uh, adopted a statement of faith that was committed to Scripture. The church adopted a covenant. That is, they covenanted with one, with one another and said, this is how we'll live as the people of God, as members of First Baptist Church Valley. So you see this, this deep commitment early on uh, of folks when this, when this faith family was established. Now this morning, as we continue our story, I want to speak about numbers. And I want to be very careful because numbers can be very deceptive. That is to say, you can do a lot of things to draw a crowd. And drawing a crowd, though often having a lot of people feels like success, drawing a crowd is not necessarily successful from a biblical perspective. And what I mean by that is, we can attract a crowd, but when we're thinking from the Bible what success is, well, success is producing disciples. It's reaching people for Jesus, seeing them grow and mature in Him, and seeing them move from the point of coming to know Jesus to being equipped and reaching other people. That, that's success from a biblical perspective. We see that in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, when Jesus gave the Great Commission. So having a huge number of people, that may or may not be good. It may or may not be faithful in terms of uh, the Bible's perspective. So numbers can't tell the full story. And they shouldn't be relied upon to determine success ultimately. But we can also learn some lessons from numbers. And some numbers simply can't afford to be ignored. Now, as we look back in the history of our church and the attendance uh, uh, of our church, there are a lot of numbers that are unavailable. But there is one number that seems to have been kept most faithfully, and that was the number of those who attended the Sunday school, the hour before worship where believers gathered around the scriptures and fellowship together. Uh, the church has the most complete records for, for those people who have been a part of that ministry. Now, I want in just a moment to talk with you about the numbers of the various decades, like the number of people who were attending Sunday school. And again, that just sort of gives a snapshot, certainly not a perfect one, but it gives us a snapshot of how many people were involved with, with First Baptist Church Uvalde's ministry. Now, for some decades, I'm going to give the number of people who were in Sunday school on the second Sunday in September. That happens to be today. Usually, not always, but usually in the life of the church, that's a fairly well-attended Sunday. Uh, so, so we're looking at that number, and where it was unavailable, we're going to look at what is available, if it is available, and that is an average for the year. I've got to say thanks to Marlene, because Marlene did the research for this and, and prowled through records, and so I appreciate Marlene doing that. Um, so, again, numbers tell a story, they don't tell the full story. Uh, and as we think about these numbers, we'll, we'll think together about them this morning, but also we'll think about them for the next few weeks in the series Unstoppable. As I mentioned earlier, First Baptist Church Uvalde began in 1882 with around 10 charter members. There's a small group, but by 1910, the church was running 110 people in Sunday school, and that is uh, an average they were running 110 uh, on average in Sunday school. By 1930, the average was 256. 10, 
110, 256. You, you can see what's happening here. By 1940, the number who attended the second Sunday of September this weekend was 426. By 1950, the number was 406. So you see sort of a leveling off here. In 1960, the number was 469. So again, we, we're beginning to see a climb. In 1970, the average was down to 282. By 1990, the number was 223. In 2000, 237. By 2010, the number was 160, and that's fairly similar to what today's numbers are. So I want you to look at this graph as a visual indicator of the numbers that I've just spoken about. As you look at that graph, does it startle you? It startles me a bit as a pastor. Um, Again, numbers aren't necessarily an indicator of faithfulness. But these numbers, they're hard for me to ignore. Um, We all see the overall trend line. So this morning as we begin this series called Unstoppable, I want us to think for a moment about Matthew 16, 19. In Matthew 16, 19, Jesus said that he's going to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. What is Jesus saying? He's saying that he's going to establish the church and the church is going to be successful. It's going to be victorious. Why? Because the church is the tool, it's the vehicle by which God carries out his purposes here on earth. It's through believers. Now, this is the universal church. That is, all of those who have believed in Christ and put their faith in him. So this is a guarantee, a promise, that the church universal is going to be unstoppable. But that promise doesn't apply necessarily to each local church. See, it's entirely possible for a local church to close its doors. We've seen many uh, churches that have closed their doors. So what is the future of First Baptist Church, Uvalde? Will we be one of those churches 20 years from now that's struggling to pay the bills? Or the doors are, are locked up? Will we be that church? Or will we be revitalized and strong well into the future if Jesus tarries? I want to see us be a vibrant church, a growing church, a church where, where people are, are telling others about Jesus and people are coming to know Christ and, and lives are being changed, where disciples are being made. It's no secret that many uh, families who have been strong and faithful to this church for years, have moved away this past year. You, you, could, you could list several names. And when that happens, there's sort of a vacuum. And it seems critical that more people begin to engage and more people begin to say, you know what? I'm concerned about the witness of the gospel in Uvalde and the surrounding area, and I'm concerned about what's ahead for the future. This morning we'll be looking, as I mentioned a moment ago, at Romans 12. Before we read this passage, it's important to understand what's been happening in the book of Romans prior to Romans 12. So Romans 1 through, cha- through 11, through chapter 11, Paul has been giving this incredible theological treatise. That is, he's been explaining how great God is and how good the gospel is, how God saves us, not on the works of our good behavior, 
but on the basis of the incredible grace of Christ. And so Paul's given this amazing statement about the greatness of God, about his grace. And then in chapter 12, he turns the direction and and the direction of, of the concluding chapters of Romans, he begins to focus on since God has done all these things for us, this is how as believers we ought to live. This is what all of this means in our daily lives. And so we'll, we'll look at chapter 12 uh, together with that in mind. Let's begin in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In this passage, we see two ways that believers are called to live a life of true worship. We see two ways that believers are called to live a life of true worship. Look in verse 1. Notice the therefore. Paul says, therefore, I'm appealing to you. In other words, because of how gracious God has been to us, we need to live this way. And for those of us who know the mercies of God, who have experienced the grace of Jesus, this is written to us. Notice that, that Paul says, I appeal to you as brothers. He's writing to the church at Rome, those who are believers, to brothers and sisters in the faith. And, and he says, I'm appealing to you. I'm, I'm pleading with you. Because God is all of these things, because he's shown you his great mercy, then be this. Live this way. Make your life about this. And so Paul pleads with them. And what does he say? Make your bodies a living sacrifice. Make your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, we don't make sacrifices today in 21st century America. But if we look back and we, we go back to the Old Testament times, we understood, understand that the, the, the folks of Israel would bring offerings to the temple. And they would make sacrifices, animal sacrifices. They would bring an animal to the temple to, to be sacrificed for the atonement of sin and, and for other kinds of purposes. And they would, they would bring this live animal and it would be slobbered, slaughtered. It would be, it would be killed. And in Leviticus... 625, we, we see that. This is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, shall the sin offering be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. So this offering to God was holy. And, and what does Paul say about this? This living sacrifice that you're called to be is to be a holy sacrifice. It's to be a sacrifice that is acceptable to God. So, so what's Paul saying here? He's saying that every one of us who have known the mercies of God ought to make our lives a sacrifice. Now remember, these Old Testament sacrifices died. Jesus is not calling us to die. Perhaps in a situation of martyrdom, he might. But what he's really calling us to do is to live for him on a day-in and day-out basis to center our lives around him and our commitment to him and our love for him. In fact, he calls it here a spiritual act of worship. It's an an act of worship. Paul says, you want to know what it means to have tasted the mercy and the goodness of God? It means that you ought to lay your own lives down every single day to be a living sacrifice. Now, we might ask, how, Paul? How do we become a living sacrifice? Well, in verse 2, he gives two ways that, that we are 
to be a living sacrifice. First, refuse to be molded by the world. So how do, how do we live our lives as a living sacrifice? How do we worship him in truth? How do we live lives of true worship? Well, we refuse to be molded by the world. Look at look in verse 2. He says, do not be conformed by the world. And there's a sense in which Paul is saying the world, those who are not a part of the, the family of faith, are going in a different direction. You can't go with them. You can't find yourself tossed along with them. You have to, you have to be different. Notice he says, do not be conformed. There's a sense in which automatically we're going to be conformed if we're not careful. If we're not careful, we're going to find ourselves persuaded by the arguments of the world. We're going to find ourselves not looking to Scripture for guidance on, on what's true and right and good, but we're going to find ourselves guided by a talk show or a blog written by who knows who. Paul is saying, if you want to be a true worshiper of God, and you want your life to be a living sacrifice, then you must not conform to the world, though it would do everything in its power to conform you. And don't we feel it today? Don't we feel the world trying to bully us and push us and, and, and tell us that we cannot be a people of the book? And to do so would be a horrible affront to humanity. Oh, folks, We must not believe the lies of the world. No, we cannot be conformed to the ways of the world, though the temptation is huge. Though it is clear how we could want to be shaped by the world. So Paul makes it clear that our lives cannot be patterned, molded, and shaped by the thinking, by the behavior of the world out there. It reminds me of... uh, something that was called the Lazy River. Maybe, maybe you've been to a water park and you've experienced something like this, going around the perimeter of the water park, this, this sort of just float along Lazy River. You, you just kind of drift along in this river. That The water isn't swift. The current isn't strong. It's just sort of, you just sort of drift along if you're, if you're uh, in this Lazy River. And Paul is saying to us, folks, You cannot drift along in the lazy river of the world. What does he mean by world? Well, he means the spirit of the age. You can't be taken in by the spirit of the age. You can't just drift along. No, you're going to have to be purposeful to resist that, not to be conformed to that, because there's going to be every pressure in the world to be conformed to the ways of the world. So let's think about what refusing to be shaped by the world would, would look like first We must say, foundationally, to worship God, your soul must belong to him. You can't be a true worshiper of God. You can't be shaped by him unless you belong to him, unless you're one who has known his mercies. So there's a distinction here between those who know Jesus and those who do not. Now, a lot of the times people think because maybe they've done something religious, maybe they went to church when they were little or they went through this religious exercise when they were younger or something, maybe they walked the front of the, the aisle of a church, it means automatically that, that they know Jesus. But that's not reality. The real, reality is this, that to know Christ, there must be a time in our lives where we say to him, I've been going my own way and I don't want to do that anymore. I believe you came and you died on the cross, you were buried and you rose again, and I want to follow you. And when that happens in our lives and we mean it, then we're, trans, we're, we're taken from the kingdom of darkness and we're put in the kingdom of light. 
And everything begins to change and our desires begin to change and our affections begin to change. It's not that we'll be perfect, but it's that the Spirit will convict and, and, and make us come to the place where we don't want to go our own way anymore. So we cannot live lives of true worship unless that has happened in our lives. And walking the front of the church when you were a kid or going through some sort of religious ritual when you were younger is not the same thing as believing in Jesus and calling out to him. So we must be careful. Second, all of life is meant to be worship. Every bit of life is meant to be worship. No silos. Now, we love to do this, and it's so, it's so evident sometimes on, on Facebook. Uh, it, it's so clear. Somebody posts this joke that's really filthy, and then the next thing you know, they're posting this quote about how Jesus is so awesome, and you're going, what in the world is that? It makes no sense. And yet, to one degree or another, we're all like that. We're... we're inconsistent. But what this passage tells us is that God does not intend for there to be inconsistency. Our lives are not to be siloed. Well, in church, I'm not going to talk with that coarse language that I use when I'm out on the job. No, how about you not silo your life? How about you live all of life when you're in church and when you're on the job to the glory of God as a living sacrifice? That's the call of God for every one of us. It's not to silo our lives where one minute we're sort of doing the Jesus thing and we're, we're serious about it because it's church. And then over here, oh, there's a little more freedom. I'll kind of do what I want to be free. I'll do, I'll do what I please. That is not what this passage means. There, there can be no silos. Now, this is important in how we live, but it's also important in how we think. It's very important in how we think. Understand that a huge part of the battle today is a battle of the mind. And we see that in Scripture, Philippians 4, 8, and, and other places, we see that. But it's a battle of the mind. What's going to shape the way I view the world? And today, and, and my, my heart breaks for children and for youth, today there's such a pressure. There's such an intense pressure coming at them from every direction, practically, not to believe anything that the Word teaches. And that's why it's so critical, parents, that you're discipling your children and bringing them up in the faith every single day, praying with them and reading the word with them and having family devotion and worship times together. Why? Because the world is trying to shape the way we think. The question is this, what am I going to believe about this issue or that issue or this situation or that situation? Am I going to believe the prevailing wisdom of the world or am I going to believe what the book says? You see, the world wants to shape what you believe. The world wants to shape the way that you think. And God's word is quite clear, brothers and sisters. We must not be conformed to the world if we would be true worshipers. No, we must be shaped. We must be shaped by the very word of God. So our passions, our goals, our hopes, our behavior, all of life is meant to bring him glory, is meant to be an act of worship. So some of you, and, and I get it, I, I do it too sometimes, well, I'm gonna go to church, I'm gonna worship, but the reality is all of life is worship. All of life is meant to be lived for his glory. It's meant to be lived for his honor. All of life. Now, often when it comes to, to being a believer, we're sort of like a one-hit wonder. You, you know what I mean. Somebody who comes out with a song and they're really, really popular, they're number one for like seven weeks, and they drop off the face of the planet, you never hear from them again, a one-hit wonder. Now, a lot of the times when it comes to our faith, sometimes we're like that. Oh, I'm going to really love Jesus. 
brothers and sisters, the Christian life is, it's kind of an up and down, but the trajectory ought to be that we're being transformed and changed, that we're being made different. Third, as we think about what this means in our lives, be careful what has the affection of your heart. Be careful what has the affection of your heart. That is to say, be careful what your heart loves, what your heart treasures. How do we know what our hearts treasure? Well, it's what we think about. It's what we put our time into. It's what we talk about. It's what we spend our money on. Many times we're shaped by all kinds of things, even good things. But sometimes all of these things can keep us from being shaped by the things that matter most. You know, we're so busy. We're doing this and this and this and that and that and this. And they're good things. They're great things. But somehow this, this spiritual thing, that gets put to the side. Well, I'll get back to that. I'm, I've got good intentions. One of these days, I'm going to put a focus there. But right now, I've got all these great things to do. Folks, even though that's not the intent, in many ways, that's being shaped not by the word, but it's being shaped by, by the outside. We must be careful what has the affections of our heart forth Be careful what is shaping your view of life. What informs your view of right and wrong? Is your view of right and wrong shaped by the prevailing perspectives of this age? What your favorite sports hero has to say or what a blogger has to say about this or that or your favorite actress, what she said? By the media you consume? By the shows that you watch on TV? Listen, every article that you read, every bit of music that you listen to, the videos that you watch, the shows that you watch, all of those things, if we're not careful, they begin to shape what we believe. They begin to shape what we think is right and what we think is wrong. And brothers and sisters, if, if you know Jesus, there's a danger here. We must come to the place where the book is shaping our perspectives, where the word is shaping our minds, And so that all of life is evaluated through what the Word says. And instead of allowing the world to come over here and grab a hold of our perspective in this particular issue, no, instead, we're striving to to take a whole view of the world that's seen through the lens of the Word. That, that, brothers and sisters, is what must happen if we would honor God and worship God in all of life. Fifth, be very careful about who is shaping you. If we put ourselves constantly and purposely in the fellowship of those who are turned against God and who have no fear of God, that's going to shape us. It's going to affect who we are. Because we're going to begin to talk like they talk. We're going to begin to joke like they joke. We're going to begin to enjoy what they enjoy if we're not incredibly careful. So our best buddies who aren't following Jesus are going to shape us. Now, I'm not saying that we can't be friends with people. We should be careful that the people who are shaping us and who are having the biggest impact in our lives are people who are going to help us love Jesus more, not try to conform us into the world. We've all heard this since we were kids. Birds of a feather, they flock together. There's something there. So make sure if you're a believer that you're connected to some other mature believers. Put yourself in the presence of other mature believers who are going to help you walk with him not away from him. Help you love him, not despise him. So do not be molded by the world. If you would be a true worshiper, you cannot be molded by the world. Second, seek to be molded by Christ in every area of life. Seek to be molded by Christ in every area of life. What does he say? 
Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Be transformed. Be remade. We, we get the English word, the, the, the Greek word here, uh, we, we get the English word from it called uh, metamorphosis. We, we get that idea, metamorphosis. Let your life be remade, be reshaped, completely changed by God. In fact, Paul uses that very same word in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, there's the word again, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So what's he saying? Our minds... They were veiled before we knew Jesus. There was a blinder, in a sense, over our minds before we knew Jesus. But now that we know him, our minds begin to be shaped and transformed by his word. And we begin to change the way that we think. We begin to change the way that we look at the world. And the Bible shapes how we see everything. Now, as we, as we think about this, there's a certain change there's a certain change that absolutely must happen in the way that we think. And the way that happens is when we begin to read and study the Word. And we begin to meditate on the Word and memorize the Word. God begins to change the way that we think. Our minds begin to be renewed. You see, Romans 1.28 says this, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Here Paul is talking about those who are turned against God and their mind, Paul describes it as debased. And there's a sense in which after the fall, after Genesis 3, every one of our minds had been broken by the effects of sin. And so here in Romans 12 where Paul talks about the renewing of our mind, the idea is that God is transforming our minds so that our minds are no longer veiled by the lies of the world and by the brokenness of sin, our minds begin to be shaped more and more by the Word as the Spirit brings conviction and shapes us as we study the Word. That, that, that's what's supposed to happen. We're supposed to be transformed. How are, how are we transformed? By the renewal of our minds. When we think about 911, and we know that America was forever shaped by the events of that day, you see those towers and, and the monuments. It, we were forever shaped. American history will always record 911 as one of the most significant days, I believe. And there's a sense here in which those of us who, who are believers are supposed to be forever changed as our minds are remade, as we spend time in the Word and God reshapes the way we see everything, the way we think about the world. A lasting, indelible, permanent transformation. That, that's supposed to be happening in, in every one of our lives. So what shapes your mind and what shapes your heart? What, what is it? You see, as we seek to be changed by God, He begins to shape us. He begins to, to change us. Every one of us, once we come to know Jesus, we ought to begin to look more and more Christ-like, like I said earlier. In fact, Ephesians 4, verse 20 says it like this, but that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds 
and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. So what is this saying? We've got to be intentional about being transformed. He says, don't be conformed, be transformed. And, and when you do those things, you're going to truly worship. We've got to be intentional about not being con- conformed by the world, but we also have to be intentional about being transformed. We can't put our lives on spiritual cruise control. We can't say, well, I don't know a lot about the Bible or about God, but, but that's okay. I'll leave that for those other people. No, if you're a believer, learn the word. Don't say, well, I'm going to be happy to be three years old in the faith. No, we want to grow up and mature in the Lord. Now, again, not for the sake of knowledge, because there's a danger here that we gain knowledge, but that our lives aren't shaped and transformed. When that happens, it creates pride, and we think we're big stuff. We know a lot about God, and we think we're better than everyone else. That is not a work of the Lord. A work of the Lord brings humility. So we learn about him and we learn about his greatness and instead of thinking we're big stuff, we realize we're, we're not big stuff at all and we throw ourselves upon the mercy of God as we learn how great he is and how amazingly gracious he's been with us. Those who have been enemies of his, who have sinned in countless ways. But we want to go deeper. We don't want to just skate around at the surface. We want to be shaped by him and changed by him in every way. So let God's word shape your mind. As you read the word and as you study the word, the spirit of God will use his word to bring conviction to show you, hey, I don't need to do that. So-and-so said this and it aggravated me and I I said this back to him. The spirit says, wait a minute, are you treating others with, with gentleness? And then you can repent. It's an opportunity for repentance. God, I don't want to be that anymore. Forgive me. I want to walk I want to walk in gentleness. That's a fruit of the Spirit. Do do you see how the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and speaks to us and helps us to change? As we seek to put off the old self, that is, we don't gladly do what we used to do. We strive to stay away from the things that are sinful, and we seek to put on the new self. That is, by the enabling grace of God, we seek to walk in a way that's pleasing to Him. That's what is supposed to happen. So with the barrage of information that's coming at you today and at me today, we we live in the information age, right? There's always a huge amount of data coming at us from one way or another, from one direction or another. We have to recognize that if we're not careful, that tidal wave is going to take us with with it. And it's going to pull us or push us away from him. It's going to push us to be conformed. And so we must stand against it. How? By being in the word of God. That the spirit of God might take the word of God and shape and change you. So memorize the word. Study the word. Read the word. Have family devotions where you're, you're singing the word with your kids and, you're, and you're, you're reading the word together and talking about the word together, praying together. Those are so critical that your children's minds and hearts might be shaped by the truth, that their hearts might be renewed. So pray for God to change your heart, to give you new affections. Ask him to change your heart. You know, sometimes I find myself wanting this or that more than I want him. And when I do, I say to him, God, change this wicked, sinful heart that's so prone to wonder. God, would you help my heart to seek you, to long for you, to treasure you above all things? You help me to want you? Sometimes we have to plead with him for a heart It's not so stubborn that that longs for him. So we ought to do that. We ought to gather with other believers who can 
encourage us and, 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 and challenge us to keep going with him, to keep walking with him. We need that fellowship with, with others. Now, a church that is filled with believers who aren't being shaped by the world, a church that is filled with believers who are not being conformed to the world, but who are being transformed, who are being shaped by the word, that is a powerful force in the hands of Jesus. Now, I want you to to understand the reason we're talking about this today in light of the graphic that I showed you earlier is this. Because what does God use to reach a community? It's people whose lives have been changed. You know, there are all kinds of arguments against Christianity today, and I believe there are good answers for those arguments. But you want to know the most powerful and persuasive argument for the reality of the gospel? It's a changed life. It's a person who doesn't walk in selfishness, but who's selfless. It's a person who doesn't walk arrogantly, but is humble. That is a powerful defense of the gospel. Because when people see that, it's so different than what they see everywhere else. It makes them say, what is it? What is it? And so how does this connect to First Baptist Church Uvalde being an unstoppable church? Because we need a family of believers who are committed to being transformed for the glory of God. Who are committed to living out the faith in every area of life. Not siloing their faith, but living it out in every area. Why? Because then when you're... At the job, you're going to be a light there. And one of these days, that, that fellow who's made fun of you because of your faith and because you haven't gone along with, with uh, the, the sinfulness uh, that, that's so been a part of the, uh, the, the culture there because you've resisted that, not in an arrogant way, but in a humble way. One of these days when his wife walks out on him, who's he going to go to? Well, because you've lived a life of consistency and honor and Christ-likeness, he's going to go to you and say, brother, I'm broken. I need help. And there's your opportunity. Here's your opportunity. You see, when a church is filled with people whose lives have so lined up with the gospel, and when we fail, we seek forgiveness. We say, hey, I'm not perfect. I'm sorry. I said this. I did that. We, we admit our sinfulness. When a church is filled with those kind of people, that's a powerful church in the hands of God. So what's going to to make this church be strong well into the future, it is believers whose lives have been powerfully shaped by Jesus Christ. And that is going to affect your neighbors, your coworkers, your family, your friends, the folks on your kids' little league team, your daughter's volleyball team. It's, it's going to have an impact in all of those ways. So if First Baptist Church, Uvalde, has a bright future, it's going to be because each one of us who know Jesus, who are members of this body, are drawing close to him and who are being conformed into the image of God. So you see, we've got to recognize the necessity of pouring our lives into this work that God is calling us to. Jesus founded the church. And so our commitment to the church, because this is the the means by which God intends for a gospel influence to be made known. It's the church. Read the New Testament. You'll see it over and over again. The church is established. Why? For the purpose of telling others the gospel. That the gospel might go forth. That the gospel might be protected. That the gospel might be proclaimed. So what's going to ensure that the gospel is proclaimed in Uvalde today? It's going to be a church full of people 
who are being transformed by the work of God. What's going to ensure that a faithful gospel presence will be in Uvalde in the future? It's going to be believers today who are being transformed by the grace of God. So you want to know what's going to change that trend line? It's you and me getting serious about this. It's seeking him to be transformed, to let him shape and change us, to be a people of the word, to be a people telling others about him. So what if you belong to God today and you're at a kind of a time in your life where your heart's grown cold toward him? You've let all these other things pile up and become more important, and many of us have. What what do you do? Well, to motivate your own heart to change, one of the very best things you can do is to meditate on the mercies of God to meditate on what God has done for you, to to spend some real time thinking about the fact that if Jesus hadn't come and died, you you would have no hope. Eternally, every one of us would be separated from God in a terrible place called hell. We would have no hope. None. But the reality is, God has shown his mercy. Can we think about that and dwell on that? Think about all the countless sins you've done. Oh, if we were to catalog them, couldn't we fill books and books and books and books and books and books? Every one of us have walked in darkness in so many ways. And in Christ, God has wiped it all clean. Let's meditate on that. Brother and sister, if your heart has grown cold toward the Lord, then spend some time alone with Him meditating on what He's done for you in Christ. I believe he'll warm your heart. I believe he'll give you a new desire for him. And then spend time in the word every day. Whether you get warm fuzzies or you don't get warm fuzzies, spend time in the word by faith, trusting that the word will shape you, that the word will change you. Ephesians 4, 2, pardon me, Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5 says this, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Meditate on that, brothers and sisters. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. I believe it will warm your heart toward the Lord. So again, what does this passage have to do with the future of First Baptist Church Uvalde? It has everything to do with the future of our church. God's plan for changing this world isn't a new program at the church. It's not some grand production. No, God's plan for reaching the world today is the same as it was in the New Testament. And that's God's people living lives of integrity and character and Christ-like love in the world out there. That's God's plan for reaching the planet. Oh, but we want a program. Then somebody's got a planet and maybe we'll leave it to them. No, folks, it's personal transformation in your life and in my life. That's what it is. It's having an impact on our neighbors and coworkers, our friends and family. This is the New Testament way to see the gospel go forth. It's the New Testament way to see the growth of the church. But it's so much easier to leave it to a visitation team or an outreach team. But it's not the New Testament way. So, how about you? What role will you play in reaching the community of Uvalde? What role will you play and what the future of this church is going to look like. Will you be a part of a great revitalization of this congregation where lives are being changed and transformed? 
Will you be a part of ensuring that Uvalde has a faithful gospel witness for decades or centuries to come if the Lord tarries? Brothers and sisters, God is calling us to be changed. Join me in prayer.